This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 138 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. If you're providing therapy or tutoring services, contracting with schools, or offering professional development to K-12 professionals, you won't want to miss this episode. As someone who has explored the possibility of doing school contracts, I'm always looking to learn more about how school leaders make decisions regarding budgets and staffing. I grew up in the Chicago area, which meant I lived in a community with an abundance of organizations, transportation systems, and districts with a variety of programming options. But when I relocated to a different part of the state, I found that the communities around me were way different from where I'd grown up. While there are several large districts near me, the surrounding communities are smaller with fewer resources, especially in other parts of the state as I go further south. 
Public transportation can be minimal if it exists at all in certain communities, which makes it difficult for families to access medical and therapy services. Some communities don't even have stoplights, let alone grocery stores or daycare centers. This makes it difficult for families to give kids a variety of experiences. School districts face similar challenges because they're less able to work with community organizations for field trips, after-school programs, or educational placements for students needing special ed. Serving high-needs populations becomes a challenge because many districts don't have experts on staff to conduct evaluations and provide specialized services. So this means paying for outside consultants, service providers, and transportation fees for out-of-district placements. As a result, special ed budgets for small districts can become unmanageable, putting school leaders in a very difficult situation. And cutting budgets can be devastating to all parties involved. Students may lose access to services or at the very least need to switch providers. District staff have the burden of providing additional services or wearing multiple hats in their current role, adding responsibilities to their already full plates. But what people often don't realize is the emotional impact this has on the leaders who carry the burden of making these difficult decisions. I often see negative comments about school leaders on various influencer accounts or in discussion groups, and the thinking can be very us versus them. There's a lot of finger pointing and assumptions about people who are in those jobs that have an extremely high turnover rate. And I'm talking about directors in schools, principals, superintendents, and those kinds of roles. But despite all of the assumptions, I have yet to interact with a school leader who didn't care about helping kids. And that's why I was so excited to talk with Chris Dodge, who's had experience leading in both rural and urban districts as a principal. As a lead learner in elementary school settings for 10 years, and currently the principal at Thorndike Road School in Worcester, Massachusetts, Chris works to create collaborative structures and systems that bring stakeholder voice into school-level decision-making, as well as strategies that promote student success and achievements. He's accomplished some really impressive things as a principal, and he's passionate about supporting and mentoring leaders and educators. In addition to being a principal, he's also a consultant with Seaside Educational Consultants and an adjunct instructor at Assumption University. In this conversation, Chris shares common but misunderstood barriers to school success that are prevalent in rural communities. He shares why transportation issues cause barriers to community engagement, educational placements, field trips, and instructional programming. He also talks about challenges small districts face when hiring consultants and contractors, as well as professional development providers. And we also discuss why districts cancel contracts with service providers and consultants, even when they have a strong working relationship with those consultants and providers. He also shares what school leaders look for when selecting a contractor or professional development provider for their staff, and why getting leadership training, such as additional degrees, certificates, or work experience can be an asset to you, even if you are directly working with students and you don't ever see yourself being a school administrator. One of the key themes that comes up over and over again in this conversation is the idea of being resourceful and using the expertise that you have on your school team in order to provide quality services. 
So obviously, as a person who provides professional development for districts, I am all for outside experts coming in. But it's also important for us to leverage the expertise of the people who are already in the building. And that's what I help you do as a related service provider in the School of Clinical Leadership. If you are in a support staff role, so if you are a speech pathologist, social worker, psychologist, counselor, or a special education teacher, um, an occupational therapist, but if you are in one of those supporting roles, you can emerge into a leadership role and really act as a coach and an expert on your team in providing support for the teachers and the administrators, especially when it comes to supporting executive functioning. Executive functioning challenges can be tied to a lot of the common things that come up when it comes to supporting kids in the classroom, behavioral issues, problems with student engagement, motivation, and learning, work completion, academic performance, as well as the skills that students need to succeed in non-academic environments, such as recess, extracurricular activities, or vocational placements once they're old enough to get a job. All of these things that are going to be really important in ensuring their success after high school. So this is such an important role And in order to provide these supports adequately, those people in those related service provider roles really need to emerge as instructional coaches for those people who are in the classrooms. This can amplify the effectiveness of those pullout services that they're often doing with students. And of course, knowing how to do this comes down to knowing exactly what the interventions look like and navigating the logistics of working in a team environment, figuring out how to meet with everyone and share this information with the staff. So that's exactly what I help you do in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. At the very end of this conversation, I asked Chris what people in that related service provider role can do in order to really stand out as a leader on their team. So you're definitely going to want to listen to the conversation and learn how he answered. And really his answer ties into what I share in the program. So again, to learn more, you want to go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. So now please enjoy this conversation with Chris Dodge. Today I am joined by Chris Dodge, an elementary school principal from Massachusetts. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, Karen. Thanks for having me. So obviously, we always start off by uh, by talking about what's your background? Uh, what what brought you to where you are now? And what are you currently doing for work? So yeah, um, my story is a pretty, I mean, straightforward one. I became an elementary teacher uh, right out of college when I was in 2004. Um, I taught sixth grade for a number of years, fifth and sixth grade, um, and then um, moved into a middle school setting where I was doing some intervention and some coaching of teachers. Um, And from there, got really interested um, in that coaching um, position. And so improving, helping educators improve their practice and um, 
And from there, um, I had an, an administrator's degree, but never planned on using it. And then an opportunity came my way. Uh, and so I took the jump, I guess, and and became a elementary principal. Um, and I've been this, I'll be heading into my 11th year as an elementary principal. Um, and I have been um, a principal and this would be my uh, fourth school. Um, I started in a really small rural school, K to, a K to six, a hundred student school, which is unique in Massachusetts. Um, but that's where I got my start. Mm-hmm. It was actually where I started teaching. Um, so that was interesting in itself. And then became a principal of a three to six school in a neighboring town, which was a rural school, but different, uh, different kinds of challenges. And then um, became the principal of the other school in that district. So I expanded to be principal of two schools um, before coming to where I am now, which is Worcester Public Schools, which is um, a pretty large herbal, uh, urban district in Massachusetts. Um, Worcester currently serves um, about 25,000 students um, in the city of Worcester. My school is Thorndike Road School, and we are a school of about 360 students um, in Worcester, K to six. So how often is that, that people get their administrative credential and either don't end up using it or get it knowing that they're probably not going to use it. Does that happen a lot? And what, like, why does that happen? Um, It's a good question. I, I think it's probably more common than you'd think Mm -hmm. Uh, for, though I can't speak, I can only speak for myself. When I was leaving teaching, when I was leaving college to go into my first role, um, in Massachusetts, you have to get your master's degree within a certain number of years. Mm-hmm. And I was really going back and forth about what I wanted to do. And I was consulting with um, some professors of mine and some colleagues trying to figure out, like, what should I do for my master's? Yeah. Um, and at the time, a lot of them said, well, you're going to be a principal someday. And you're kind of told this. And I was like, Re-? that was interesting in itself. Um because I didn't really consider it, but I think people may have seen it in me or assumed that that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, thought about doing maybe a reading specialist or um, something different. And um, I guess my thinking at the time was this might be something I, I could potentially use much later on down the road. Yeah. Um, though, and uh, an elementary you know, I was thinking, do I get my master's in elementary, but I already had a bachelor. So it was like, why do you, you wouldn't yeah, do this yeah. twice. Um, and so it was really like, I wanted to diversify my skill set, but also um, have something that would maybe suit me later on. Um, though I'll be honest at the time I was watching, you know, leaders around me going, you know, why, why would anyone do this job? Um, yeah. And so um I learned a lot in my master's. Actually, my master's degree um, in leadership really did help me in my practice. And that's what I, when I talk to people who are considering something, I always tell them like, don't discount a leadership degree because um, a lot of the coursework you do around observing practice and giving feedback and um, I guess organizational change, um, a lot of those things you can apply to your teaching. Um, Yeah. 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 Sure. That so makes I sense. Became very, I, I became a better teacher through through that program for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I could imagine that if you have to think about things from the leader's perspective, even if you just 
Like if you want to stay in your role and be really good in a role where you're directly working with students, like, uh, you know, a teacher or obviously some other other options would be like if you're a related service provider, like one of the therapists who's in um, mm-hmm. in one of those roles. I know that people ask me all the time about, you know, is it worth it to get a doctorate? Is it worth it to get another degree and something else? And so sometimes when where there's a therapist who's gone into the schools, it's, well, I have more of this medical training. Do I want something more educational, which is kind of what I did. But um, but yeah, it's that debate of leadership versus do I do something that's more specific to, like you said, reading? That's another example. I do know people who are elementary level uh, masters in reading is something that has come up a lot as an option because obviously reading elementary school, that's going to be a huge push. Right. And right now, um, you know, the, there's a whole lot of energy around reading instruction nationally. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. think there's just a appetite for it. Um, one of the things that I was just thinking about as you were talking was really how one of the things I gained from leadership from that program was really, um, and I figured it out pretty quickly in this role is, you know, adults, adult learning and, and yeah. student learning and mm-hmm. the things that we need to learn and grow, whether we're adults or kids are very, very similar. <laughs> They're not very yeah. different. And so, um, as you learn about how to grow an organization of adults, you're also applying a lot of those same concepts to your classroom. So you're trying to nurture a community and you're trying to get people, your students to take risks and to, um, you know, all those things that apply to a classroom also apply to the adults. So I try to, you know, there's a lot of through lines, I guess, between the work that I do with my teachers and my staff um, and the work that I want them to do or that I hope that they do in their classrooms with kids. Cause at the end of the day, we're all human beings with 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 very common needs, right? Yeah, yeah. That when I first heard about adult learning theory, it was so in in my doctoral program, I had to think about designing professional development, and it's so interesting because it's the way that what's considered best practices is not what we often do because we have to fill our PD days, which is so frustrating to me as someone who offers PD because I'm like. I want to, if you want me to train your staff, I need to have an ongoing relationship with them all year and maybe even continuing after that. But I know that a lot of times they're like, can you come in and do a three hour seminar? And I'm like, maybe I might help people shift their thinking on a couple things in that format, but I'm not going to get them to change their practices on an ongoing basis. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Professional development, I think, um, no, you're right. So many times we get as schools, it's like because we're so used to just one and done, like we want to yeah. check things off the list. Yeah. Professional development often becomes that. I get a person in, they come and talk to my staff, they leave, nothing changes. And so we really have to think differently about that in schools and with professional development divider uh, providers, because you're right, it's that relationship and everything comes down to relationships, whether it's with adults, whether it's with kids professional development, you want to do any sort of change, the relationship is at the core of all of those things, yeah. um, regardless of age or it's sex. It's so funny. Like every, I always talk to people in the leadership positions. They're like, yes, I know. But then it, it's still, it's still really hard to, 
to change that that model because you're kind of up against lots of different barriers as far as um, time and logistics and funding and um, just figuring out who to who to get to do those ongoing learnings and and that type of thing. So when you were so I was I actually was just looking at a post yesterday on LinkedIn that got me fired up because when you go, I've seen a lot of parallels between school administration and then the uh, like corporate learning and development. So the just the whole instructional design and learning and development and adult learning as a field, as a specific skill set. And a lot of times it's like there is this skill set to teaching adults how to change their practices, which is very similar to what um what kids need often so what like when you went through your administration program what kinds of things did you learn about adult learners that surprised you or were things that maybe you know you wouldn't have realized as a teacher um i can't even say that i learned them in my program in my masters i i think like most most positions in, I guess, schools specifically. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I learned was through just doing the job. Yeah. Uh, because I think like many positions, unless you do it and are in it, it's really hard to adequately prepare yourself. I mean, yeah. I guess there's like, um, I remember doing a lot of work around change and change processes and how to nurture and grow change. So like um, a scenario would be, you know, you want to adopt a new program for literacy. How would you go about getting stakeholder feedback and how, what process would you go about to garner support and um, get lots of different people at the table to do that, which I, again is valuable. Um, and then of course you have courses in like budgeting and yeah. law and, and all of those things, but I didn't really learn the lessons about the real human lessons about people and what they need. And, um, until I jumped in, didn't know what the heck I was doing, made a ton of mistakes. I still make them every day. Um, but I think that's the, the only way you can learn is by really getting to know people and understanding what their needs are and how to grow each of them individually and what makes them tick. So Mm -hmm. for the people in my building, what are their strengths? Um, and how do I kind of encourage them to, um, take a risk or try something new in their practice. I think um, that only comes with experience. One of the things that was really surprising to me, I guess that I wasn't prepared for was like group dynamics work. I wish if I had to say about the program that I took or really any master's program in leadership, I don't see a lot where you have any coursework in group dynamics and that to me is a is a mistake because that's the majority of the work that I do is how humans interact with each other and 
around each other and how they behave and communicate or not communicate. Yeah. And those dynamics are always changing and shifting. And how does your role impact that? And so like, that's the kind of stuff I feel like is a missed opportunity because that's, if you're doing this work, right. That's all, that's where you're spending all of your time is thinking about the groups of the, the groups of people in your school and how to make them better. Um, but also how to maybe encourage or interrupt some group dynamics that might either be really positive and priming you for change, or maybe some that aren't. Um, and I think it'd be easy to just point as a leader to just say, you know, treat people as individuals and say, Hey, this behavior is acceptable or not acceptable, but we all know that people behave they their behaviors some are predictable by the environments that they're in and are not always um, conscious, right? So mm-hmm. um, I'm always thinking about my teams and the different dynamics within them, and that's really really complicated work. I wish I knew more about that heading into this position because I didn't feel like I knew nearly as much as I've learned over eleven years working with groups of people. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, like what you just said about your program goes back to the whole theme of how adults learn. Like you can't learn everything in your master's program. You can get a foundation to know what are the theories and where are places that I can go to get information, but you can't really learn it until you do it, which I do think that some of the programs for um, what I personally liked about when I went back, um, I could have gotten a doctorate in communication sciences and disorders, but they told me you can't have a job. You have to just be taking classes full time versus in education and special ed. It's designed for people who are working. So you are working Mm. and applying what you're learning at the same time. And I really loved that because everybody in my program that I was connected with, there was um, so many, so much diversity in the roles. There were people who were in administrative roles that you could have without having the official credential, you know, they sometimes create those or, you know, other disciplines. So I'm an SLP. And then there were social workers and special ed teachers and reading specialists and people with all these different backgrounds. And they were also doing the the work and working in the schools at the same time. And I really liked that because it helped. I felt like I got so much more out of the experience than I did in my undergrad when I hadn't even had a real job yet, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, um, and I wish I had, I think again, and, and programs are different. This was just the one I was in, but, um, I wish I had more opportunities to watch and learn from different principles in different settings yeah. that had different styles. One of the things that's really neat about Worcester is that there's 35 elementary schools. So there's 35 elementary principals and vice principals. So it's really interesting and fun for me to talk to those principals and learn from them because we all have different styles. We all mm-hmm. look at things differently. And um, it's one thing that's great about this role is, you know, you can be very, you know, everyone's unique and how they see things, what strategies that they're going to try or employ with their school. Um, and I just find that to be so fascinating. And one opportunity that I wish I had more of was like time with different principals 
and and to be able to ask them questions like why what made you think about doing it this way or why didn't you do it because um you know i also do some mentoring of principals and that's kind of my role there is like just to offer another perspective they're already smart people um they're a principal of a school so i don't i don't necessarily need to i'm not there to tell them what to do i'm really there to just give them a different perspective and so many times they appreciate that because in this role, it's it, it can be very lonely and isolating and siloed. And sometimes I'll catch myself where I need a different perspective because I'm only thinking, you only think in your own terms, in your own way. And so it's so helpful for leaders to have someone that they can reach out to and say, here's a situation I'm in. How would you think about this? Or what am I missing? Or what question am I not asking? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's another piece of the leadership kind of puzzle. That's really one that took me along, took me some time to figure out that it's okay to reach out, have people that you can trust and reach out to for help. Because literally you take that job. I remember sitting in my office on day one going, all right, what do I do now? Uh, because there's no one there to say, this is how you run a school. Mm -hmm. Even with a degree, I mean, you show up day one, you're the guy in the office and expected to just take it and run just like, you know, I guess as a teacher, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're just supposed to know these things. And um, it's a complex and challenging job. It is the best one, but it takes, you know, you got to have people that you surround yourself with that push you, make you better, get you to think differently because otherwise you, you do, you get, you can, you can fall into the trap of getting stuck kind of in your own thinking. And that's not always good either. So, you know, it's just something that I have to be conscious of. Um, yeah, regularly. That is why. So um, as we were discussing last week, I have been exploring job opportunities because I've been self-employed. So let's see, for the last fully self-employed, um, doing that as my full-time thing since 2018. And that has been, it's challenging enough in the schools. I have found it to be even more challenging as a self-employed person, because at least you have coworkers that work for the same organization and are on the same team working in the same school with the same students um or you know and that could be true for for other jobs as well but when you're when you're on your own you might have other friends who are also running businesses but it's not the same at all and so that um the having the peers to talk to is has been incredibly challenging. And that's part of the reason why, not that I think it will be all sunshine and roses and, and <laughs> like in a school administrator role as you're sharing, but at least, at least there is, um, there's other people. And so I, I'm curious, uh, I know we talked before about the difference between working in a rural versus an urban setting with that particular thing, just access to other peers um yeah. or access to resources just um human resources funding resources yeah. and how that looks different um yeah. what my head always goes to for some reason when i think um you know low income and poverty like a lot of people think inner city which is is part of sure. part of that but then there's also rural poverty as well which is a very different thing to mm -hmm. to work with and you've had both experiences. Yeah, I um, 
So I've worked in a rural setting that was um, middle upper class. I've worked in rural um, setting where um, really high need, low low socioeconomic statuses of families primarily. Um, both of those communities being primarily white communities. Um, mm -hmm. So rural Massachusetts, um, I guess you would say. And then I've come to Worcester where, you know, I was looking for something different. One of the things that I think um, you and I were talking about it is, um, I think is not unique to Massachusetts, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, rural poverty is very misunderstood and mm -hmm. very under, I don't want to say underappreciated because we, but, but I don't think um, a lot of people really understand the needs and the challenges of those communities, particularly um, at the state level. Um, in Massachusetts, we've been fighting really hard for, um, you know, for more funding opportunities for rural schools because they have challenges that are different than urban communities. Um, a lot of what's happening in Massachusetts is because of budgets and a lot of fiscal challenges, a lot of um, the small elementary schools in towns that they really love and appreciate and want to keep, they're getting, um, they're either closing or they're um, reorganizing um, into bigger districts. So like mm -hmm. regionalization is happening. And it's kind of sad because we all know that um, families want their neighborhood schools, but unfortunately it's becoming really hard financially for these towns to be able to do that. Yeah. As far as some of the different, the stark differences between rural and urban is, um, uh, so just in my experience, um, in rural districts, when I was in my previous setting, um, you know, there, everyone has to wear lots of hats. And yeah. so the bigger mm -hmm. differences now for me is, um, in my previous role, you know, I had to we all just kind of shared the workload. I, I we only had a central office of um, maybe four people: superintendent, curriculum, budget, and sped director. So that's only four people, and then there's me. So we really had to work in tandem together, and really work and help each other, and do things that might, you know, other principals might not typically do. So I had to be all hands on with busing routes, transportation, registration. Um, all the things that I don't really see in a bigger district because they get done by other people mm -hmm. or it gets down to me at the school level. So just a lot of um, wearing of many hats, even our superintendent, she would have told you that she probably does a lot more than um, some other of her colleagues in the superintendency, just because she didn't have a central office of people to do some of the tasks that would normally be done by other people. So there's that. Um, and then there's just um, some of the challenges with um, just challenges that are uh, an urban setting might see or deal with um, mm -hmm. when it comes to families that are struggling, students that have challenges, um, but just, you know, um, a lack of resources are hard to come by. Geographically, um, you know, you're not near a lot of other schools or you're not in a big district where you have other schools with programs. So yep. it's hard to provide some of the supports that some of our students needed. And if we did, um, that come at a, that came at a very large cost. So if you had a student come through your school and you couldn't provide services to them or meet their needs, 
you're talking about an out of placement, which it is crippling to a budget. And so uh, my previous district was really struggling with the numbers of students being outplaced because we couldn't support them within the district. And so we were having to put them, um, send them to other places, not because we didn't want to, but we didn't have the resources. Um, And so we were always trying to do more with a little and trying to get our teachers to really um, broaden their understanding of um, universal design for learning and restorative justice and really trying to take care of the whole child every day. But um, it, it was, I mean, it was hard, it was hard work and mm-hmm. um, not that this work is easy anywhere, but um, in rural communities, I found it to just be challenging um very challenging, very rewarding, but also very challenging, very taxing. And then when COVID hit, um, I think some of our vulnerabilities really just got magnified, um, making it even more challenging because, um, again, internet access, access to technology, all the things that you might not have to think about if you were um, in the eastern part of the state where, you know, resources are a little bit more plentiful. Uh, in, in our part of the state, we really had some unique challenges that we were trying to support families and kids with and our staff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's challenging no matter where you go. I think what's, what happens in Massachusetts is because we're in the Western part of the state, we're far away from Boston. We don't get as much of the um, attention, I guess. And I think some people mistakenly think rural with farmlands and, um, it's just different than I think people picture it in their head when really, um, families in the Western part of the state and these rural communities are really struggling and the families are struggling. Um, and so are the students and the things that we were struggling with as a school, they were struggling with at home. So access to resources, um, transportation to doctor's appointments, to yeah. uh, mental health professionals, um, access to mental health care, really, really challenging um, all the way around. So um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I learned every minute of the day when I was there and I brought a lot of that to my current setting where the challenges are similar, but different. Yeah. Um, what's different in Worcester is the, I think the biggest difference is because it's a city, you have public transportation, you have everything geographically um, is more accessible. Yeah. The transportation thing is huge because so I like I worked in um, again, I was in in a rural district and they were close to a town that is, I would say it's a college town, but it's not, (laughs) I'm in Illinois. So the Chicago area would probably be more like comparable to the Boston area, as far as just, if you were to draw an analogy between the States and I'm in a part of the state where, um, you know, people I'll talk to people from Chicago and it's like, Oh, why don't you just take public transportation? And I'm like, because it's so it's, it's nowhere near as robust as it is up in Chicago in a big city. And then the, um, in the district that I was in, we had a lot of the wearing multiple hats, not just for administrators, but for people who were in support staff where they would take oh. on this pseudo administrative role. My, the SLP that I uh, that I worked with, she was also the zero to three transition coordinator. 
And the superintendent, new superintendent came in and was like, I want to take that off of your plate. And she was like, okay, let me explain why it's on my plate to, in the first place, because it makes the most sense based on the way that things work in this district. And then the transportation thing with accessing student, uh, getting students to access extended school year, um, totally different when we we were with one co-op and then we switched to go to another co-op and then we had to change all the different things because all the uh, the, the resources that we had uh, available to us completely changed. And so that was that was an interesting transition, especially explaining that to parents. I'm going to take a quick break here and talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. One of the themes that comes up in this conversation is the idea of instructional coaching and how important it is for people on the school team to be a coach for others on the team who may need their expertise and knowledge. And that's what I show you how to do in the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership is a program for related service providers who want to learn how to provide executive functioning support on their school team. Part of this is understanding what to do in your therapy sessions, but part of it is understanding what information the other providers need in order to support students beyond the therapy room. And I give you a framework for doing this in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now let's get back to the interview. In my previous district, the things that were always being talked about at budget time, and not just my district, but any rural district out western part of the state was special ed costs and transportation. Those are the two things that were really weighing heavily on districts um, because it was it was out of control. And the special ed costs, it wasn't because more kids have special ed in those districts. Um it's because the cost of providing those services and then outplacements, um, you know, they didn't just have those people at their fingertips. So one of my schools didn't, we didn't have a school site. So anytime we, a student came through that needed testing, we were paying a consultant um, to come in and do that. And he was wonderful, but again, budgets are limited and um, um, it, it became really, really challenging. Um, and still is quite honestly. Yeah. I mean, just like, (laughs) it's kind of interesting how even just the location of offices with transportation. So like Mm -hmm. the district that I'm in or that I was in was about, I would say 14 miles North of this big town, um, like this bigger community. And so the way that the buses worked is that the nor the northernmost part that the bigger district served was only a couple miles south of where people in my district lived. So, it the transportation costs to get kids to extended school year was very like a very minimal cost for us to access those services, and then the cost to send students down was was very minimal as well. And so they could just reroute their buses and get these this whole group of kids down to, to um, these placements. And then we switched co-ops and the placements were like in a completely different location, miles away, completely out of the way to get the transportation there. So it's like the way that, the way that we had to think about 
those placements and getting kids to access those services was it completely changed when we switched co-ops. And I think that most people didn't really understand logistically what was going on. And, um, and so that was, that was kind of hard to even just communicate that to the community and to the staff who were the ones that were making these recommendations about, you know, this student needs these services. Um, and so that was, that was challenging. And it's, um, it's hard to, I think, hard to be in that position when you are have to be the the person on the other side of the table saying, well, we can't provide these services for your child or, or how we were going to provide these services is going to look different than it did yeah. before. And it's, it, it's not, it's not the precedent that you were used to. Right. Right. And you know, what's interesting. You said like transportation is such a challenge. You just made me think about something that's unique to Wist or that's different in Worcester than my previous setting. When transportation is a challenge, um, it's hard to bring your kids on field trips. Oh because, yeah, because every it's not the trip that costs money; it's the getting them there. So, mm-hmm. when you're in a rural community, you want to bring your kids to Worcester or Boston or Springfield, um, but you just can't because you can't afford the the cost of the transportation. When in Worcester, our kids are always doing things. They, they, um, we have colleges in the city that offer, we go to sport athletic games. They, they get offered to go to, we have museums in the city. And, and so the burden, there's not the burden of getting them to those places. Like there is an orange. So, um, I find that the kids in the city in Worcester have just access to a lot more opportunities than they might otherwise get. If you were in a rural community, um, and those kids deserve it. They should get to go on field trips because they might not have ever gone outside of the town. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't make it happen unless, our, you know, you have a PTO or an organization that's really willing to help you fund those things. But we just couldn't make it happen within our budget. Just the costs were were um, way too high. Yeah. So I, I I know that a lot of people who are listening are in those positions where um, for example, the therapists, a lot of times will, they can choose to work for a district or work for a staffing agency or a contract company that is one of those, you know, again, the the agencies that contract to those districts that are in need of service providers or a lot of people who are in private practice, they might consider getting a contract with a school that is having a hard time finding uh, an SLP to to be a, a member of their staff, for example. And then there's that whole negotiation process. And I know that a lot of people who've really been able to provide services to areas that were that did not have access to providers. But I'm curious with with that and then also with people who offer professional development, what what that's like on your end as the administrator who's trying to think about all the budget for those types of things. I mean, I think we've kind of talked about relationships being at the core of everything. And so for me, um, when my first year in my first principalship, we were um, contracting for um, OT and some other related services. And though I loved the relationship we had and those people did great work, we had to think differently because of the budgetary Mm -hmm. uh, impact. And so one of the things we decided to do, and again, this was collaboration through my superintendent and really trying to think differently was like, can we 
cost share, we were calling it these positions. So if we, if I had a three day a week speech and language pathologist, maybe there was a school nearby that needed one for two and we could kind of like cost mm-hmm. share them and yeah. give them the benefits of a full-time employee. Um, it was, a, there was a lot of, um, hoops to jump through, but we did end up making that happen for a couple of positions. Um, but again, I think for us, it was just like thinking a little bit outside the box of how we've normally done it. Um, and I know that they're continuing to do that today. So some neighbor, because in, in rural Massachusetts, what's I think is happening because of the cost savings districts, smaller districts are trying to partner with other districts to make like bigger to share costs of materials and resources. Yeah. um, I mean, I guess for me, I, you know, I offer professional development in our state too. And so I'm always trying to think about um, long-term planning and goal setting. So, um, and when I meet with professional development providers, I I always want to know that they're as invested in our organization as they are just providing some specific service mm-hmm. um, because as a, again, we, we get support um, through the state. They offer professional development or consultant work um, pretty periodically. And I've made some really nice relationships with some organizations who um, I've worked with in the past, um, but more importantly than just having worked with them, I also know that um, the work is sustainable and I know that they are, they understand, they are going to tailor the their work to us, not the other way around. And so they, they don't come to me and say, Chris, here's this professional development that we offer. Here's what it's going to look and sound like. And here's what you're going to leave with at the end. For me, it's more learn about us, learn about who we are, and let's work together so that I can sustain the work too, because you as a provider aren't going to be here all the time. You're mm-hmm. going to come. And we want you to come and understand what's happening and how the work is progressing, but that needs to be sustainable over time. And the only way we can do that is if we work together and it doesn't just have to be me. It's my team. It's my vice principal. It's my coaches, my um, school adjustment counselor. So we just make sure that there's a really, there's a team based approach to everything. A little trickier though, with service providers like speech and language. I mean, I, I would say, flexibility is key. Um, you know, so like if you were in a rural setting, um, now that I think during COVID we learned that technology can be a really nice thing. Um, if you can, if you have access to it and families have access to it. So there's also potential cost savings as well. If you're a district who's really trying to, you know, keep an eye on things like that, you know, possibly like offering more, um, flexible approaches to support kids. I know we, even in our own district, we have some, um, like there are some organizations that provide like virtual tutoring to some of our kids. Yeah. And and so then you're not bearing the burden of additional costs, especially if you're a small school. I know we were, we were really challenged with not just paying the service providers, but, you know, we had to pay for their travel out to come to, to get, to get to us and to leave. And then, um, and so all those things were really adding up and not that, the service they provided wasn't great. It just, um, you know, again, it's, you're always trying to balance. And um, I think any sort of flexibility that a service provider could have. Um, and again, I'll always say just, you build relationships, you build relationships with kids and, and the administration and you show that 
You're not just there to come in, do your thing and leave. If you're really invested in the kids and the teachers and what's happening there, I think, um, you know, you'd make a good case for a principal or a leader of any kind to really want to make sure that those things stay. Cause those are the things that sustain the work and, and make positive change over time. Yeah. Did I that think- answer your question? Yeah, it did. I mean, there's so much to this, this, this conversation and I've been, I, you know, I trying to find solutions to all the, all the things, but I think the virtual option has opened up a lot of doors. And I don't think that, I think that sometimes with technology, maybe we throw the baby out with the bathwater and forget about in-person things, which of course are important, but I know that when people ask me to do professional development, I'm like, okay, let me think about what I would need to quote you if I were to come out there and get on a plane, you know, Mm -hmm. that would be so much more expensive than me doing it virtually, which is, it's not the same as being in person, but at least you can figure out what actually needs to be an in-person trip versus what can be done virtually. And I mean, with the the work that I do, I was already set up with all my programs online. So that was really nice during the pandemic that I barely, all I had to do with my programs is just do a couple additional seminars on teletherapy, but all my programs, all my trainings, all of that was accessible. So that was really nice during the pandemic that I was already set up to do that. And people could still use my, the therapy materials and virtual sessions. And that's a huge thing in Illinois. I know I get recruiters that contact me all the time that are trying to fill SLP positions for, if I have an Illinois license, it doesn't matter where I live in the state, I can provide those services and I don't have to relocate. They don't have to pay for my travel. So that is nice to be aware of those options and just when you're, and even just the the idea of if you are going to travel, sharing with other districts, I think that's helpful for people to know. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, when you're going to have landscaping work done and you try to team up with your neighbors and like, yeah. you know, they can quote yeah. you, they only charge you for the equipment once. So if your neighbor needs a tree cut down or their, their driveway yeah. redone, you can combine. It's like yeah. the same thing. <laughs> you know, and, and Again, we. I don't think people associate like innovative thinking with rural districts. Like, yeah. but I think they're some of the most innovative people I've met because they have to be. There's no, cho- you know, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, because when you're the one school in the town with a limited set of resources and people and, you know, and you just have to figure it out. So. I, I often say some of the most talented educators are in those communities. And, and um, I became a better leader and teacher and educator just being part of it because um, the work that you have to do um, every day beyond the just traditional eight to three work, like the work that you have to do before kids arrive and after mm-hmm. they leave um, just takes a, like a really, um, a whole sp- slew of not just like learning but dedication that um you know that is just unmatched uh in my opinion just because of the 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 dynamics of the the communities that they serve Mm -hmm. how often do you so we've talked about the idea of the wearing multiple hats when you are in an administrative position and kind of touched on it uh, with 
some examples of how that can look in a role where you're working directly with students. But when you are in that position and having to be really resourceful with what you have, knowing that you might not have the budget to hire contractors for all these positions, what kinds of things did you feel like you needed from your team uh, as far as, you know, from the people who are directly working with students to make everything happen? Uh, a lot of work was spent on the belief that this could be done, but there was only one way to do it. And it was together because I had entered the school at a time where one of the schools in the district had closed. They had to close it for financial reasons. And so mm -hmm. this school had absorbed, there was like two cultures in one building. Um, and so they were already, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of change happening in the district and I was new. And so um, it took a long time to get people to buy in and believe that this was worth doing and that it could be done and that we were going to do it together over time. Because I think when you're new, people think, well, you're going to do this, you're going to leave, and then we're going to go back to, you know, someone new is going to come in and they're going to change it. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like a lot of my work was bringing people together making sure that our conversations were, we identified problems, but we were solution oriented in our conversations that we could disagree and have um, conversations with each other, but also leave feeling like we were heard, but also with some resolution at the mm -hmm. end. Um, felt like a lot of it was around team building and like I said, group dynamics. So we had to make sure that we had adult community norms, that we as an adult community were going to work a certain way. We were going to define what that looked like. Again, a lot of things you would do in a classroom, I did with the adults. So yeah. as a staff, what do we stand by? How are we going to communicate? How are we going? Um, and was it perfect? No, it won't. It wouldn't have ever been perfect. It's still not perfect. But I think the work was just getting them to trust. It was trust, right? It was it was organizational trust. So the work that the adults do within the day and um, with each other. And it's, I, I had someone say to me once, it's called the work before the work, right? Yeah. It's all those things that impact how we work in an organization before we actually step into our classrooms. Yeah. Am I in the school? What's my role here? Do I have, do I have worth? Um, you know, all those things that are basic human needs. We had to make sure that the adults felt those um, because otherwise we were going to go back to working in silos again. I'll just do my thing. I'll worry about what I have to do every day. I'll punch in, I'll punch out. And we really had to get people to think broader and think, you know, all kids are our kids. When we sit down at the table about a student to talk about it, we're going to talk about their whole being and how we can support them. Um, and so it was always a work in progress. It was always every day trying to um, problem solve and think on the fly and all, but also be proactive. And um, yeah. yeah, there is so much work before the work. <laughs> it's a lot of teamwork. Um, Hard work, hard work. And then keeping people 
feeling good about it. Because I think when you are doing this work, it gets so easy to get down about when something doesn't go right or it's not, we feel like we're, it's not going well or something doesn't go the way we expect it to. And so really just bring people back to the good things that they were doing and the amount of work and the impact that they were having. Um, I always had to reaffirm for them, like, this isn't about me. It's not about anything, but the the kids and the families we're serving and the impact you are having on them. Um, yeah, that's kind of a long way of saying we, we tried to bring our staff together. That part is, has been, it's, it's challenging because you kind of feel, I know that a lot of people feel like they're not doing anything. And so I, I mean, my, that's, you know, obviously salary and, you know, compensation is a factor in how you feel about your job. But I think that people just want to see, they want to do something and see that it's working or see that it's making a difference. And it's really easy to get burnt out when you don't see that and then feel disengaged Mm -hmm. and, and not feel really excited about the work that you're doing. And so that's the, like, you know, it's the, that you, you need the encouragement as the adult just as much as the kids need it. There's the, all the, the research on how much positive feedback do kids need and the adults need it too. And I mean, it's, it's like, like I said before, I've had a hard time getting it being a self-employed person, but I don't know that it's necessarily easy when you're employed either, but at least you have a team and you would hope that your leader would you know, rally around the team and help you get that. And so you would hope so, but uh, you know, I've been in enough schools where that's not the norm. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately that's, you know, I can't, I have no control over how much people get paid. I have no control over things like that. So what I have to try to do is say, okay, outside of those things, how can I really get people to believe in the work we're doing, feel good about it, feel like they have voice in their work. Cause I think a lot of educators don't feel like they have voice in mm-hmm. work that they do. They don't feel like they're treated like professionals with degrees. And so I really try to see my role as someone who I'm there to encourage and support and remove barriers for my staff. Um, I try not to micromanage them because again, they're professionals. They have licenses, they have degrees. I am not here to tell them I know more than they do about the kids in front of them. They live and work with them every day. I'm just here to support and encourage and reflect and sometimes challenge, right? Um, but it's not in a gotcha sort of way. It's like I'm me challenging something you think or have said is just to think differently. And for me to think differently too. So it's it's reciprocal. Whereas I don't know that that's always the case, but I think, you know, again, adults need the same thing kids need. They need voice, choice, autonomy. They want to know what they're doing is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I think that got really challenging during COVID. Um, and I think we're kind of coming out of that, but it's so important for the leader to be the person doing those things because um, everyone wants to know when they walk in the doors every day that someone, they feel seen, right? Mm-hmm. Adults too. Yeah. Uh, so many different, so <laughs> many different things. Um, okay. So I know we're, we're getting close to the, to the time that we're wrapping up. So, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to throw one more question before we, before we wrap up, what you, when you're thinking about the, the, the support staff that are really there to support teachers, 
what are some different ways that they can kind of take risks as leaders on their team? Like when we're thinking about the, the therapists that are coming in, because I know that a lot of times they feel very siloed off and removed from the from the team. Like mm-hmm. what are some ways that you you like to see them showing showing the the leadership courage? Yeah. I mean, I love when, so I, I try to make a conscious effort when, if we're saying we're going to be an inclusive environment, we have to be inclusive for adults too. So that Mm -hmm. means, you know, inviting them, you know, having them come to staff meetings, having them be a part of things um, that we do as a staff. I think so many times they often get left off or forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's really important. I guess um, what I look for in our service providers is to just be part of the team and be a voice. So if we have a staff meeting or a meeting where we're talking about a student or a goal for the school, even if it's not related to your field, you are a professional on our team and we mm-hmm. want to speak up. Mm-hmm. So um, say what you need to say and be part of the work. The other thing I would say is whenever you get a chance to I guess for myself, whenever I see our service providers, not just working with one student, but also like interacting with all kinds of kids like that to me um, might not sound like a risk, but I know that that's not easy either because the kids don't know you and you don't know them. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you're building maybe one or two days a week. So that's kind of different. But I think the more I see those people kind of be part or want to be part of the fabric of our school, um, that to me goes a long way in saying like this person really wants to be here, wants to work with our kids, is willing to, you know, you see a kid who needs help in the hallway, don't be afraid to help them, um, even if they're not a person, a student that you see or service. To me, that's that's kind of in line with the mission of the school. And so, um, or just ask questions. You know, I sometimes one of the, some of the nicest things that happen to me throughout the day from people that I don't get to interact with a lot because they're not in our school every day, is just, you know, those, those small moments I get with them in the hallway where they're asking me about maybe something that we're doing in the school or some way that they can be more helpful offer to help. Hey, I have an extra period today. Can I go out and help at recess? Or can I, you know, I don't know, just being a part of the team, I think is just, is to me that that's what I want all of our staff members to feel like they can do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so many, there's so many different pieces to that. Um, but I know that, I know that we've been talking for a long time. So where can people go to connect with you? Um, and just, yeah, learn more about you. I know you're on a couple different platforms. Yeah. So, um, I, I have a Voxer ID. I haven't used it in a while. Um, but you can certainly reach out to me there at cdodge33. Um, I have a Gmail, uh, account cdodge33 gmail.com. You can always email me there questions, you know, whatever. I I love interacting with educators, but more importantly, the place I'm at probably the most frequently is Twitter and Instagram. Um, So I have um, my handle is at principal dodge one. That's probably where you'll see me the most active. I try to share a lot of things our school is doing. I try to learn from other people. And and that's just a place where I get a lot of professional development. Um, And that's how you and I interacted. So I get to meet great people through it. So it's just been awesome. So feel free to interact with me at any of those places. And so you're on there. You, I know you do coaching for principals, but also you're looking for PD for your, your district that you support. Yes. 
Yes. Right. Um, and you can find it. So Worcester Public Schools and our school is Thorndike Road School. Um, you can find out information about us there. Um, we also have a Facebook page, Thorndike Road School. You can just search it up um, and you'll see lots of awesome happenings that are ha that, uh, that are going on, especially in two weeks when we welcome kids back to the school. Yeah. Well, and this, by the time this goes to be published, it's, it's August as we're recording this, it's going to be probably uh, November. So we'll be, you'll be, what will be well into the school year getting close to break and then coming back for January. <laughs> so <laughs> always, the always the, the ebbs and flows of the year. No kidding. No kidding. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks, Karen. I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places you can go to connect with Chris and to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership my program that helps related service providers to be that instructional coach and to be that leader that the team needs in order to provide some of those supports across the day when it comes to executive functioning, behavior, academic performance, and social skills. To do this effectively, we need to think about what we're doing in our direct sessions with students, but we also need to think about how we can provide support to the other people who are interacting with kids across the day. So to learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends or leave me a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for a guest on the show, or if you're interested in being a guest, feel free to email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. 
Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.